Well, with the arrival of Christmas season, it's here. We also have uh, a number of expectations. This morning, I'm going to preach from Luke chapter 3. We are on the third day of our Luke, three through, Luke read through as a church family, uh, where you are encouraged to read a chapter of Luke every day, either individually or with your family or household. Um, we are encouraging everyone in the church to collectively read through the book of Luke together, one chapter a day. So if you didn't know about that, or if you needed today as a reminder, you're only three chapters in, there is time to catch up. So you can join in, um, and we would love if you are um, a parent or if you have children in the house or grandchildren in the house, uh, let me invite you. We want to give you an easy opportunity to become a spiritual leader in your home, and so uh, gather your family together. We're doing it at night after bedtime, um, after bedtime and just before melatonin kicks in, um, and we've got our children there harnessed to a couch, and, uh, and we're reading the book of Luke to them out loud. We want to encourage you, whatever uh, situation works for you or setting works for you. If you don't have children in the house, if you're, you live alone, maybe call some friends, um, call some family members, and maybe a neighbor, and just read the book of Luke with them. Uh, we're praying that the Lord will do a work through his word. So we want to talk about today, we're, we're in Luke chapter 3, that's our reading. I'm going to preach and teach through a portion of that to give us context, and if you haven't done your reading yet, it'll bring to life even more what you will read tonight. Um, I am not reading or I'm not preaching Luke chapter 3 verses 23 and following, that's where we get into the genealogy of Jesus. I'm not helping you with the pronunciation of those names, all right? It's all on you. Uh, you can read through that, and let me just give you kind of a let me just kind of give you, give you a, a veteran's take on that. Uh, mom, dad, grandparent, whoever it is, when you're reading that scripture out loud and you get to a list of names that may or may not be easy to pronounce, just go with it, all right? Just push on through. And if anyone in your house starts giving you grief about not being able to pronounce those names, you tell them that once they are able to pronounce them correctly, then they can bully you about it, all right? So don't, don't listen to them. Uh, you just... Just push on through um, and read God's word. It'll be faithful. But we want to talk about Luke chapter 3. Specifically, we're going to talk about expectations and realities. You know, when we move into the Christmas season, there are, um, with the Christmas season, there are expectations of what the, the season's going to be like. We're going to have these wonderful gatherings. They're going to be festive. They're going to be um, just, just life-giving. We're going to have times where we sit down with family and beautifully decorated homes and, and eat deliciously well-made meals. And then we're going to wake up on Christmas morning and everything's going to be delightful. And then um, we will, moment by moment, come to terms with the fact that that yet again today, the realities don't always align with expectations. And this is so common, so common that we, we get to laugh about it every year. And I just want to look through, um, with the help of some technology, I want to look through some of the basic expectations that we have and then the realities that soon follow. First is with Christmas dinner. We have uh, this idea, an expectation that Christmas dinner is going to look like this. And, and let's, let's be real. There are people in this church that have the spiritual gift of cooking, right? Like, they, like God has gifted them with the ability to put together fantastic meals. And we have expectations that when we have our, our Christmas gatherings, like people are going to walk into our homes and they're going to see this spread on our table. But then the reality sets in that really our meal is going to look like this, right? 
This is what some of your homes look like. It's, it's not that fantastic first picture. This is, this is a little closer to reality. Uh, mills, we have our expectation, reality sets in. Um, and here's another incredible expectation that we have. Some of you have the family tradition that you're going to take your family to take pictures with Santa. And the expectation is you're going to have Santa, your children are going to get the opportunity to go meet this this wonderful figure of the the season, and they're going to have a picture, and it's going to just be perfect. It's going to be beautiful. And then they get there, and reality sets in. (laughs) And they hate him. They hate that, and they hate you all at the same time. Uh, How about this expectation for gift wrapping? Um, We spend all, some of you spend all year saving up to buy the perfect gift. Like you put your heart, you put your heart into buying gifts for people. You save up all year round. There's some of you that are wise enough to shop year round so that you don't have to get two weeks from now and say, Christmas came again this year. I didn't even think about getting it. Some of you, you spend so much time purchasing a perfect gift and you put so much heart into it. If your heart could sweat from effort, that's how much effort you put into purchasing gifts. And then you're going to wrap them. You're going to put them under the Christmas tree. And on Christmas morning, everyone's going to wake up and they're going to come in. And, and before they even have an opportunity to be at shock and awe over how perfect the gift is, they're going to be mesmerized by your wrapping. But then you get into it and the reality sets in and you're like, I think that this will be close enough. (laughs) And some of y'all are guilty, all right? There are some of you with gifts that you got from the store that are about 99% wrapped when they are in the bag that they came in. You're just like, we'll throw some tape on it. Uh, That's reality. That's reality. Uh, here's, another, here's another expectation. People have, people are becoming, I don't know if this is a, is a forever trend, but people are taking pictures with their pets nowadays, like holiday pictures, seasonal pictures with their pets. People, people have pets that are like members of their family. There's this term that I've come across lately. It's called fur babies. Have y'all heard of that? It's where people, people live in a fantasy world where they think that their animal is a part of their family. It's not true, all right? I know, you love your, I know you love your animals, and I recognize that some of your animals behave better than your own children, but they're still pets, all right? They're still, but anyway, we have this expectation. We're gonna, we're gonna let it be a part, we're gonna let this animal be a part of our family. I don't know if you guys can, can figure out where I stand on this issue. Um, we're gonna let this animal be a part of our family. We're gonna take pictures, but then the reality of what that uh, photo session actually looks like kicks in. <laughs> and you realize, you know what, this is, this is not quite living up to the, not quite living up to the expectation. Uh, here's, a, here's a final expectation. And this one is so, this, is, this hits home so much for me. Uh, it's decorating our homes for Christmas. There are these people, there are these people that have no other responsibility from October 1st through the end of the year. They have no responsibility, they have no jobs, they have no budgetary limits, they apparently have just troves of elves that come out of the woodworks to help them decorate their house. And so we, we, the rest of us common, normal people, with a strong encouragement of our spouses, 
decide we need to also decorate our homes to look like our neighbors who have nothing else to do on the face of the earth but decorate their homes to look perfect. And so we have this expectation that we're gonna decorate our houses to be like our neighbors and we're gonna put our all into it and this is the year that is going to look like it should be on the front of a catalog and we get started and the reality sets in and we're like, you know what? This is close enough. <laughs> My goodness, this is it. Like, I don't know how they came up with what they came up with, but this is what we're going with this year. Plug it in, babe. Plug it in. We live in the back of the neighborhood. Nobody's going to see it anyway. All right. The expectations that we have during this Christmas season are, um, they vary. I mean, they really do. They, they vary. And in the passage that we want to look at today, it is just after, the context of the passage is that the people that are gathering, we're going to tell you who those folks are, the people that are gathering, they had the expectations of who the Christ, the Messiah is going to be. Like they had expectations of who he was going to be. Um, But then John the Baptist, who's preaching, he brings the reality to them. They had the expectation of what Christ was going to be, who he was going to be, how he was going to be. And then John brings a message of reality. So you have the expectation being shattered by this, this heavy dose of reality. Now, I want to catch you up to where we are in the context of Luke, because the context determines and dictates so much of how we understand God's word, and it also leads us to having a right understanding of God's word according to the Lord's will and intended use of God's word in our life. Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, records the birth of Jesus Christ. We would have read that yesterday if you've kept up with your Luke reading. Jesus is born. He's in the manger. Uh, Jesus is then grows a little. He's presented at the temple several years later. We're still in Luke chapter two. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is brought back to the temple as a young boy. This is the story of where Jesus is in the temple with, uh, with all the t- religious people, the teachers, and then Jesus's parents decide they're going to go back to their hometown. They leave Jesus. They don't even realize that they leave Jerusalem to go back to their hometown and Jesus isn't with them. So then after like a couple of days of of looking, they realize we can't find Jesus. We're just going to retrace our steps. So they go back to the temple and there sure enough is where Jesus is. They left their child there. All right. And Jesus says, where else do you think I would be? But in my father's house, that's chapter two. We get to Luke chapter three and about, about 20 years, about maybe 23 years have passed. Jesus is now 30 years old, but he's not on the scene yet. He doesn't come on the scene until midway through Luke chapter three. Who is on the scene is Jesus's cousin, John. And John is called John the Baptist. And this is where we get John the Baptist from. John was anointed by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness around the Jordan and to preach the message of repentance to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, to prepare the way for the coming Christ. And so he called people to repentance and then he baptized them, thus earning him the name John the... Man, y'all are the smartest. So John the Baptist is preaching and he's preaching these powerful messages and people are coming from everywhere. They're coming from towns, they're coming from villages, they're coming from big cities into the middle of nowhere to hear what John is preaching and to be baptized by this prophet of God. And they start wondering, they start questioning if John is the Christ, if John is the Christ. 
And so we have this expectation that the people have put forth of what the Messiah is, who the Messiah is, how the Messiah is. And then John, in the text that we're going to look at, John answers their expectations with reality. So if you're taking notes, because I know some of you take notes and because we all love a good outline, the outline will be as follows. There are two main points and each main point has three sub points. It's going to be beautiful and orderly and I'm excited about it. So in Luke chapter 3 verses 15 through 17 is the, is the text for our sermon called Christmas Expectations and God's word says this. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chafe, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer for this message? Father, we're thankful that you would allow us to be here, assembled to hear your word. And Father, as you have given us as a church the opportunity to gather for hearing your word, we ask, Lord, that you would also provide the message that we need to hear. And Lord, we're going to examine, according to your provision in the time of study this week, we are going to examine the expectations of the Jewish people of who the Christ was, but then how you, through John's message, revealed the reality of who Christ is and what he will do. And we pray, Lord, that we would arrive at the right conclusion to have our hearts ministered to, but also to have our minds correctly aligned with your way, your will, and your word. And so help us now, Father, as we jump into the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first point in this message is the Jewish messianic expectation. The Jewish messianic expectation. Since the time of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, there has been an expectation among Jewish people that God would send a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one who came with the specific purpose of delivering the nation of Israel in completeness. And so there is, from the beginning of time, there has been among Jewish people this, uh, this expectation of a Messiah. And people have watched year after year, decade after decade, for signs of the time that the Messiah may be coming. Now, who the Messiah is, is revealed throughout the Old Testament as we have it now. And there are certain prophecies that would point to who we know came to be the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. And we affirm that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, sent by God as the Son of God to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to save the earth and all humanity from their sins by dying on the cross in their sins. We affirm that entirely. Where we are in the context of history is that Jesus Christ has not come to make himself known as the Messiah, and so he is walking towards this, and all of humanity and human history is walking towards the point of Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah, and so all of the nation of Israel and anyone that is uh, remotely attached to Judaism has their eyes looking for and their hearts set on who's the Messiah, when, he's, when is he coming, what will he do? 
Now the problem is, is that Jews, particularly the Pharisees, the leaders of, of the nation of Israel, they had a selective memory when it came to the description of the Messiah. They had a selective, uh, a selective expectation of who the Messiah is. They had set themselves to remember only the things about the Messiah that they wanted to remember about the Messiah and to l- overlook the components of the Messiahship that, the, that weren't really of any particular interest to them. There's an Australian uh, philosopher and Bible scholar named Les Crawford, and he wrote an interesting article describing the Jewish expectation of the Messiah under the Roman rule. So the Jewish expectation of what the Messiah was during the time that John was preaching this message. And he comes to the conclusion that the Jews wanted the Messiah, or they selectively remembered that the Messiah would be a threefold personality, or not really a threefold personality, but three characteristics of who the Messiah is. First, they remembered that the Messiah, the Christ, would be powerful, that he would be powerful. And they reference Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says that the heel um, of the Messiah would bruise the head of the serpent. And the head of the serpent would bruise the heel of the Messiah, the Christ. And so they look at that and they say, okay, evidently the Messiah is going to be a powerful being. They also selectively expect that the Messiah is going to be royal that he would be uh, royal. And they reference Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, which talks about instruments in the ruler's hands and they understand the figurative language of a scepter and the ruler's staff to point towards the Christ, the Messiah, who would come to be a tool on God's behalf to accomplish God's will and to liberate the nation of Israel. They also see that the Messiah will be not only powerful and royal, but also a conquering King, referencing 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, that the Lord would bring victory through the Messiah. Now, here's our issue. Our issue is, is that the Jewish messianic expectation is that the Messiah will embody all the positive attributes that they want the Messiah to embody so that the Messiah can come to liberate the nation of Israel from under the rule of all the other nations and to prop up Israel as the leading nation. Uh, Les Crawford draws this conclusion. He writes this conclusion. He writes... Uh, He writes, uh, when combined, these passages portray a powerful, all-conquering king who will defeat every enemy and restore Israel to its rightful place as God's people dwelling in security and prosperity. Shiler Matthews, who's uh, another biblical historian and biblical scholar, he writes about the Jewish messianic expectation during the life of Jesus. So the same time period that Les Crawford writes about, and he frames this argument that everything that the Jews were upholding about the Messiah was taken primarily from the lessons taught by Pharisees during the time, which weren't necessarily attached to biblical history. In other words, the Pharisees were deciding what they wanted the Messiah to be, and they said the Messiah is this things, and then they wrote papers that they said were scripture to support their arguments. They were making it up. 
And what they were making up was an argument that that the Messiah was coming to someday deliver, and this is a quote from Dr. Matthews, the Messiah was coming to someday send a deliverer and be a deliverer who should reinstate Israel among the nations and make the new nation the Lord of the earth. And so he sums up very nicely what the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people had thought for so long about the Messiah. The Messiah was coming to deliver Israel so that Israel could be God of their own kingdom. Their expectation of what the Messiah was is that the Messiah was coming to establish a kingdom and that they were going to be the rulers over that kingdom. In other words, they had mistakenly flipped the system so that they became God and God was simply a servant serving at their beckon and call. And I'm afraid that so often that is the same expectation that we lay on God's shoulders. That God would put us in a position, that he would put us in an, uh, in an environment where we get to rule our own kingdoms and God is always present as long as he's present in the position of serving our needs and our wishes. And the issue with this is number one, it's wrong. It's a mistaken expectation that we put on God. And number two, we can't handle being God. None of us have the capacity to be God. None of us have the capability of being God. Even if God were to take all of our enemies and all of our challenges and all of our boundaries out of our life and put us up onto the pedestal so that we could rule as God, we would fall on our face because we don't have the capacity, we don't have the capability, we don't have the long suffering that's necessary, we don't have the endurance that's necessary, we don't have the temperance that's necessary, much less the patience or the intellectual tact to take on ruling all kingdom as God. But he does. He does have the ability to be God, and he is God. And the expectation of the nation of Israel is that God was raising up someone, setting apart one person to come and to be the Christ so that they could be liberated from the rule of Romans in their life and that they could be set up as the Lord over all other nations. And the scripture tells us that they were expecting, and in this particular context, they were expecting that John might be that guy. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, they expected something. They came out of the woodwork to find out if John was the Christ. And John burst their bubble. John brings a reality check. Look at Luke chapter three, verse 16. He responds to this by bringing a message of reality. He says in response to this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So there's three three points I wanna take. Here's the first descriptive of the Messiah, the Christ, and the other two are illustrations of how he will operate when he gets here. The first that he brings up is that the Messiah, the Christ, is mightier than John. All right, so, so these Jews, they are seekers. They're interested in who the Messiah is, but they're looking at a human to fulfill a divine role. And John says, the one who's coming is mightier than me. I, I, can't, even, I can't even hold up against the guy. 
He uses this language in verse 16. He says, the Messiah is mightier than me. I baptize with water, but when he comes, he's gonna be mightier than I, and I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Now, this isn't just a figure of speech. There's historical context to what he's saying. The practice would go that whenever a disciple or a learner went to a rabbi or to a teacher and said, I wanna follow you, I wanna be your student, I want you to teach me everything that you have, what would take place is the student wouldn't pay or compensate the rabbi, but he would commit himself to serve him as part of payment. So if you wanted to go and you wanted to have a rabbi or a master to teach you in life, you would commit to learning under him and you would do everything for him. You would take care of, uh, you'd take care of the mills in his homes. You would take care of the household chores. You would take care of his laundry. You would take care of all of the things inside of the home and all of the things outside of the home so that he would have all of his time to spend exclusively giving you instruction and teaching you lessons. And so a disciple would learn under a rabbi and he would commit himself fully to taking care of the guy so that the guy could just teach him everything. But in all of the responsibilities that the the disciple took upon himself, there was one task that he would not stoop down to do, which is to untie the master's sandals. His thought and his understanding and in culture generally, that was the one lowest task that not even a disciple would stoop down to do, but it was left for the lowest ranking slave within the household. And so what John is saying is he's saying the one who's coming is so mighty that I'm not even worthy to do the lowest task that is assigned to a person within his household. That's who is coming. And I find it amazing, just to jump into some application, I find it amazing that John, who is the one that's being questioned, might be the Christ. He says that he is not worthy, qualified to even stoop down to untie the sandal off of Jesus' feet, yet Jesus, who is the Christ, would eventually be the one who stooped down to not only untie the sandals off of all of his disciples' feet, but with his own hands to wash their feet. What a remarkable act of humility that Jesus Christ would demonstrate later in his ministry. This Christ is mightier than John. This Christ that's coming, he will be baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, baptizing, we read this in verse 16, says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. A couple of points that we need to make here. Baptizing is an outward expression of an inward decision. Baptizing does not save you. It simply signifies and symbolizes the salvation that's been given to you by faith in Jesus Christ. So when we see someone baptized, that's not the moment of their salvation. uh, Salvation comes when one receives by faith the atoning work of Jesus Christ and accepts it in their heart. Baptism is the symbol of what's taking place in your life. And there's there's a feature of baptism that is critical to our understanding. And that is, is that everyone who is baptized is baptized by someone else. You can't baptize yourself. You can't baptize yourself. It can't be done. Now, you can drown by yourself, but you can't baptize yourself. You are buried with Christ, and you were raised to walk in the newness of life because someone has put you down and someone has brought you up, and that symbolizes that you can't save yourself. 
when Jesus comes, he baptizes, but he doesn't baptize with water the way that John baptizes. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and he baptizes with fire. There's a twofold meaning here. Number one, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which means that he is indeed the qualified anointed one of God because he is able to do what no one else in history has been able to do, which is to disperse the Holy Spirit onto another person. Nobody else. John baptizes with water. Brother Scott, water. Bob, Joe, all the other ministers on staff, water. Name any other minister anywhere. If they baptize, they baptize with water. Jesus Christ is the only one who had the ability to disperse the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he's the only one that can come and baptize you in his Holy Spirit. He's the Christ. No one else ever has been able to. And John's saying, listen, you're wondering and worried about whether or not Israel is going to become this predominant, dominating nation. But I'm telling you, Jesus is going to bring you what you need. And what you need is the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit of God will guide you and seal you for the day of eternity. And not only are you going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but you're also going to be baptized with fire. Now, again, the Jewish messianic expectation, their expectation is that basically the Christ was going to come and defeat all enemies of Israel and liberate Israel from under the the oppressive rule of the Roman government and then set Israel up as this Lord nation all over all the nations of the world. Their focus was on what God was going to do to make them a God on earth. But what John says in this reality check is that the Christ is going going to come, not just to prop you up and to deal with all of your problems so that you don't have to deal with the reality, but what the, what the Christ is going to do is he's going to come and baptize you in fire. He is going to purify your soul. You're worried about all of the conflicts and darkness around you, and Jesus is worried about the conflicts and darkness within you. And so he's coming to baptize you in fire. And there's a very important reason that you need to go through the purification process that only Jesus Christ can bring to you. And that is because judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. And that leads us to the third point that John brings in this sermon. In verse 17, he says, his his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chafe will be burned with unquenchable fire. There is a singular standard for judgment that is coming. Now let me give you some context to the illustration, the figure that is being presented here so that you understand specifically what, what he means. A winnowing fork and the practice of winnowing the harvest is uh, this. A winnowing fork is like a pitchfork. It is a rake, basically, except it has uh, broad, flaring, fanning um, extensions that are sharp at the end. And what a farmer or an agricultural worker would do is he would bring in the harvest of wheat and the wheat would be still tied in with all the stalks and the extra parts of the growth of the plant. And he would bring it in and it would be piled up in a place that they called the threshing floor, which would just be a cleared out place where, where the farmer and the other workers could work. They would come to the pile of harvested stalks and wheat and they would stick the winnowing fork in and they would step back where the floor would be cleared in front of them and then they would shake it and as they shook the winnowing fork the wind or the breeze would come through the the harvested material would drop down 
the weightier useful wheat heads would fall down to the ground and the breeze wouldn't catch them, but the chafe, the stalk and the useless material of growth, as it was shaken and it dropped down, the, the heavy useful material would drop to the ground, but the wind would carry off all the useless material. And so the picture here is that the Christ will come ready to issue judgment, ready to sort out the useful wheat from the useless chafe. The useful material would be gathered together and it would be put in the storehouse into the barn where it's safe. The, the chafe that was useless would be swept up and thrown into a fire that's unquenchable. The image here is that the Christ is coming not just to elevate Israel above all other nations in the world, but the Christ is coming with a singular judgment to sort out what is useful and what is not useful. The Jews had, because of this selective memory of who the Christ is, they had arrived at the conclusion that when the Christ comes, he's going to come and judge the world with a two, uh, with a double standard. On the one hand, he's going to judge all the nations of the world except for uh, the Jewish nation of Israel. He's going to judge all of those nations with a, a standard of the strictest justice. What is right is right. What is wrong is wrong. What is good is good. What is evil is evil. And there are no exceptions. And all of the world will be judged according to that. But the Jews held that because of the covenants that God had given with Adam and Moses and Noah and David and all the others, that the Lord was going to judge, he was going to judge the nation of Israel with a double standard. In other words, he's going to overlook the fact that they had been wicked. He's going to overlook the fact that they had wondered. He's going to overlook the fact that they had not maintained their commitment to him. And then he's going to extend them grace. This was their expectation and John burst their bubble and says, here's the reality. The reality is that the Christ is going to come with a singular standard of judgment whereby he will collect the useful wheat and destroy the useless chafe regardless of what nation you call home. Because the standard of what it means to be saved is not based on what you think God's preferences are. The standard of being saved is based on what God says the standard of salvation is, which is absolute righteousness. It's absolute righteousness. Because ultimately, what we say when we say, I'm saved, is that we are brought back into a right relationship with God the Father. We're saved from being disconnected from him. We're saved from being out of sorts with him. We're saved and redeemed from being away from him and we are saved from the condemnation and brought into a right relationship with him. And if anyone comes to God without being absolutely pure, either one of two things is gonna happen. Number one, you're going to be expelled from his presence because you're not pure and you can't be in God's presence with any sort of impurity in your life or God would absorb that toxicity and pollutedness and cease being God. Therefore, the only way to be saved from separated from God and brought into a right relationship with God is to be completely pure. To be, as John said the Christ would do, purified by fire. And the only way we know from the 
storied life of Jesus Christ, the only way for us to be saved is to receive forgiveness of our sins by placing our faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ would come and do what no one else had ever done and that is pay the penalty of debt caused by sin. And as the debt penalty had been paid, Jesus would take our sins away from us, giving us the opportunity, the privilege, the blessing to be made right again and completely pure. But that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so what is the standard of judgment? Jesus is. Jesus is the standard of judgment. So when we come into Christmas, we come in with expectations what we expect the season to be like with all the fanfare, with all the festivities, with all the fellowships, with all of the things that are to be expected in the Christmas season. But the reality is the same for all of us, that we need a savior and that savior is Christ and that Christ is Jesus. And unless we're looking to him entirely and exclusively, we will have our expectations rudely shattered one day. But I want to invite you now that if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, that you would do so. Because ultimately, what John says is that the only way to be saved is to turn from our sins and turn to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. I'm going to invite our worship team and those that are leading in our invitation to come forward. Again, our invitation is simply this that if you have never received Jesus as your Savior, that you would do so today. And it doesn't matter what you've gone through, what you've been through, what you're going through, or what someone else has put you through. The fact of the matter is, is that God is God, and that he loved you too much to leave you where you are and how you are. Because a common feature throughout all of scripture that God doesn't want anyone to be left in the mess that they found themselves in, but he wants to give you new life. And the way that he does that is through Jesus Christ. And if you, for whatever reason, have not yet received salvation by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, this morning, I want to invite you to do so. I want you to, I want to invite you to receive Jesus into your heart. And if you would like to be saved, I'm going to invite you in just a few moments, not now, I'm going to invite you to come forward and take one of our ministers by the hand and say, hey, I need to, I need to know what it means to be saved. I need to know what it means to, to be right with God. And we would love to talk with you more about that. So I'm going to invite you where you are to stand. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Everyone stand. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. After the prayer, we're going to sing a song during our invitation. And if you need to make a decision for Jesus, maybe you even need to join the church or make another decision like being baptized During the singing portion of our invitation, I'm going to invite you to step out into the aisles and then step forward. Take me or one of our ministers by the hand and let us encourage you, celebrate what God is doing in your life. Let's have a word of prayer before the invitation. Lord, thank you for the morning. Father, I believe that we all come into this season with expectations. What are, what is it going to be like? How will things be? Will it be different than this year or will it be the same? And Lord, the problem with our expectations is so often we maintain those expectations until reality hits. And Lord, there is some truth there about how we think about our relationship with you or salvation. We expect that things are all fine, that we're we're good with the big guy. (laughs) We have these expectations that maybe even we're not as bad as, as what the preacher sometimes says we are. 
And all of that is fine and dandy, God, until reality hits us in the face. And that is that we are lost in need of a Savior. And that without Jesus Christ, we will be gathered up and tossed into an unquenchable fire in judgment. But Lord, I don't want anyone to discover that eternity. And I don't think you do either because you gave your one and only son that we would be saved. And so now, Father, in this time of invitation, this time where we invite people to respond, I pray, God, whoever it is that you've put on their heart to receive Jesus, that they would have the courage to obey you by faith and to receive Jesus as their Savior. And give them the courage to step out and to come forward so that we can begin to encourage them and lead them in the discipleship process. So, Lord, here's our prayer for the invitation. Would you move among us in the name of Jesus Christ? Amen. The invitation is open.